Hi, this is Michael McGinn, and welcome to You, Me, Us, Now. We've got a great guest today, Bob Santos, who is really active in the Seattle Asian community, but much more broadly in coalition with other people in Seattle. And, uh, you know, my story, Mike McGinn, I became mayor of Seattle after being an environmental and neighborhood activist who just got more and more engaged. And somehow or another, I became mayor, and then I wasn't. But along the way, I met lots of people doing great work. But I also discovered something else, which was that Seattle had a history of activism. And the more I learned about that history, the more inspired I became about this city and about the potential of the city, because I realized that baked into its DNA were people who'd been fighting for social and, and civil rights and for people for a long time. So the song we launched off to was uh, Better Tomorrow by the Soul Swingers. And let me tell you why I picked that song. That's a song of Seattle. Uh, there's a record company in town called Light in the Attic. And what they did was they found great soul and funk sw- singers from the 60s, and they brought all of their stuff out and brought it out again new. And sometimes when we think about great soul musicians, we're, we're thinking about all those national stars. We're thinking about Curtis Mayfield and Aretha Franklin and and all of that. But you know what? There, you got stars in your own community that you may not even know about. So my guest today, Bob Santos, is one of those stars. And I, I want to just talk a little bit about this. He grew up in the 1950s and before, in and earlier, actually, in what's now called the International District. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Like many activists, one thing led to another. And he ended up becoming what became known as the Gang of Four or the Four Amigos. And I'm going to ask him about these individuals when, when we get there. But one was Bernie White Bear, who challenged prohibitions against Native Americans fishing and won and occupied an, an abandoned military, uh, about to be abandoned military fort, and, and won back the property. Uh, Roberto Maestas, who created El Centro de la Raza and occupied a school on, on Beacon Hill. Uh, Larry Gossett, who was in the Black Student Union, occupied the president's office, you know, broke up activities that he felt were discriminatory on campus. And all of these folks, as I said, created this multi, multicultural coalition for change in Seattle. They all supported each other. So we're going to talk to Bob today, and I'm hoping that people can see that struggles are the same and struggles are different, but there's a rich tradition here, and it's, it's, worth, paying, it's worth paying attention to it. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. God, I, I kind of Got carried away on my introduction there. I said, what did I what did I miss? Did I get it right? You, got it, you hit it right. You hit it right on the head. <laughs> I, it was funny when I was um, mayor. I, it turned out that we I went to opening of Larry Gossett Place, which was a low income housing place. We had, we named a Bernie White Bear Way. We named a Roberto Maestas Festival Street and. And I would say to the kids, if you ever want something named after you in the future, you need to, you know, occupy occupy, some. <laughs> occupy something, right? That would seem to be the trick. And I asked Bob when something could be named after you, and um, it turned out. I think it was 2004 or so. The uh, Low Income Housing Institute named a building after me in um, in the old Sandpoint Naval Station, which is Magnuson Park. It was. It's a building that houses homeless people, and it's more like a transitional housing development. It's a really nice little apartment complex uh, in that nice park. So I, I always got to laugh when I use that line of, uh, if you want to get something named after yourself, just occupy something. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we had Occupy Seattle when I was mayor. And uh, But I would like to report that nobody ever took over the mayor's office when I was the mayor. We were there, right. And I'm, I'm not quite sure why. Maybe we, we, can... we held them off. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Let's. I, I want to start at the beginning. Where were you born and where did you grow up, Bob? I was born in Seattle 80, 81 years ago today. Oh, my goodness. 81. 81. I've, I've had a lot of birthdays. Uh, Today's your birthday. Today's my birthday. Oh, yeah. my goodness. What an honor. It's okay. Thanks. Thanks for all the gifts and <laughs> the bottle of booze over here. Um, uh, my father uh, was a pro- pro- professional prize fighter. He joined the U.S. Navy in the Philippines. He was 18, 19 years old. And uh, on his way, a Navy vessel on the way to the United States, before, right before they docked in San Diego, 
my father got in in a fight with a junior officer, and actually before right, right was while they were docking, there was some way that my dad jumped ship, and he was out. And uh, his name was Macario Santos, and he had no skills. The only thing he liked to do was fight. He was he was the Pacquiao of that era in the 1920s, and so he started his boxing boxing career. And uh, he was pretty good. My dad had 120 fights, professional boxing matches, to California, Chicago, Cleveland, and then he ended up in Seattle. But anyway, the shore patrol caught up with my father, and and they put him in a brig. And dad would would not tell me how long he was in 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 the brig in in the jail. But after he got out, of course, he resumed his his boxing career, and he actually ended up in Seattle because Seattle was a very good sports town, a good fight town. We didn't have that many sports then. You had the Seattle Indians, Seattle Rainiers, baseball teams, and then you had UW football, basketball, but there was no professional sport. So boxing was the sport in Seattle uh, during the, at least during my father's era, during the 20s. And if, Mike, if you've ever seen this movie, Cinderella Man? Yes. That's the story of my family. That's my mom and dad because Cinderella Man is is a story about James Jeff, uh, James Braddock, right? He- heavyweight champion, and it and the movie is actually a love story about a boxer, and it's a beautiful story. And every time I see that movie or when I know it's on, I I, I watch it because that was my mom and dad growing up. That was they they were very much in love. Um, had two kids, my brother and myself. In 1934, I was I was brought out, and then 1935, my mom passed away with the dreaded disease at that time, which was tuberculosis. So, Dad, being uh, and he had he had retired from boxing at that time, and he became a boxing trainer. He trained trained other up and coming uh, boxers, and um, he couldn't handle the two boys, my brother and myself. And so we were sent to live with, my brother Sam went to live with Grandma Caroline Gilbert in Tacoma. And I was sent, and this, don't forget, we, we started in the International District, Chinatown, Manilstown area. And then I was moved I was moved to my aunt and uncle's home in the Central District. Actually, the first apartment we, that I can remember is the location of um, Yesler Terrace. We lived there before the housing development was created. And that was with your relatives or with your dad? It was my aunt and uncle. Where did you live with your dad? In the NP Hotel in the International District. What's the NP Hotel? Northern Pacific Hotel. Where's it's it? On, where is that? It's on it's it's on Sixth Avenue between Jackson Street and Main Street. Is it still there today? It's still there today. It's, so, actually, it's so, actually owned by my old agency, Interim. I want to ask you a couple of questions about the International District. So you were growing up in the International District yes. in the 1930s. 30s, 40s, yeah. And was it called the International District then? What was it called? We, we It was called Chinatown. And then us kids, us Filipino kids, we'd call it Manila Town, just to get back to it, those Chinese kids. You have your Chinatown, we have our Manila Town. It was just sort of a— And there's a Japan Town uh, down there And there's as well. a Japan Town. It was, right. Don't forget now, during that— era, there were covenants in all, most of the neighborhoods in Seattle where the white families were prohibited in selling their properties to people of color. Those were the covenants. And uh, there was an area in the International District up east along uh, Yesler Street where there were some minorities could could acquire property up to about 20, about Yesler and about 23rd and Yesler. 23rd and Jackson. Every other neighborhood was off limits. So the entire city of Seattle and and adjoining cities were completely off limits for Asians, right. Asians to live. And there are still neighborhoods that are, have that quasi- The covenants are still there. The covenants are still they're there. They're just not legal anymore. That's right. But they're still vestiges of that time. So, yeah. so you know, the International District, the, the main core of the International District, that was tide flats in the old days. And um, people hear about the Denny Regrade, where that mountain at the uh, 
north end uh, on the other side of sure. Denny Way was was slouched into the downtown to make downtown Seattle. Same thing in the International District. There was a big mountain between Beacon Hill and First Hill, or Harbor, right. Harborview right. Hospital, and they recreated that earth down and created the landmass that is now the International District Chinatown. So if you're right. in Seattle and you're on Dearborn Ave and going under the Jose Rizal Bridge, that was that was once, all, that that was was once all a hill. That's right. Yeah. But in the 30 feet down to the bedrock now. So anyway, it was created. It was, uh-huh. a, it was a new area created. The first Chinatown was in Piner Square at 2nd and Main, 2nd and Washington in that era, area there. When the 2nd Avenue extension was built, 2nd Avenue, it eliminated a lot of the Chinatown area. So some of the Chinese owners and businessmen moved up to, to the new landmass, which is now the International right. District Chinatown, uh, Asia Town. Chinese came first, then the Japanese, then the Filipinos. But unlike other West Coast cities where you had your separate Chinatowns and then your separate Japantown, Manila Town, all our parents, grandparents were forced into one neighborhood, the International District. So what was it like That's, growing up in the NP Hotel? Tell oh, me about cool. that. cool. Mike, don't forget now, I'm with my aunt and uncle, and they're sending me to parochial school. So I serve mass, I go to confession, I do everything that the nuns and the priests tell me because if you did something else, it was a sin. Oh, my God. But then then on evenings and weekends, I'd be with my dad at the Henpe Hotel. And most of the rooms were SROs, single-room occupancy rooms. And many of the tenants at that time were Filipinos, Filipino and Caucasian and a few Native Americans. So you grow up in this environment where you have Chinatown, Japantown, Manila Town, the three different languages, and all this different food. And I'm right in the middle. I'm growing up with all the, in the middle of all the, the really cool restaurants. And then up and down Jackson Street, all these nightclubs. There's a book out uh, by Paul DeBarros called Jackson Street After Hours. And in that book, he writes about the 23 nightclubs up and down Jackson Street, up and down Main Street, up and down Weller, up and down King Street. So even if you had a Chinese owner of a Chinese restaurant, in the evenings after the dinner hour, they'd open up a jazz. They'd open up the the stage and they'd have jazz. And so growing up was, was with all this music, with all this jazz. And we were singing all the time. We'd go to the movies and... You see um, Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, and on the way home, we dance all the way home, and, and that, that was what was growing up. What's a single, what's an SRO? Single room, occup- single room occupancy unit is, um, is uh, one room with a shared bath down the hall and, and shared toilets. Okay, you just, you just live in one room, and all your possessions are in that one room. And in the NP Hotel, room 306, where we lived, my dad and I, uh, was 9 by 13 feet, 9 feet by 13 feet. We had a little closet. All our possessions were in that closet. There was a bureau. And that in 1945, when I was 10, 11 years old, my father had lost his eyesight due to boxing injuries. Mm-hmm. So, so it was really tough for him, and I became a seeing-eye dog. But Sammy Santos was very, still very popular in the community, and I'd love to bring him around. I'd bring him down to the old, his old hangouts, the barber shops, the gambling halls. Oh my goodness, there was a lot of gambling halls. You know, in the old days, when you walked through Chinatown, Japantown, and you saw a window display with, with just plants, with a curtain and just plants, well, that was a gee house. That's a gambling. You, that, that's where you did your gambling. And they, they disguised it with uh, nice floral arrangements out on, on, on the window, window display. So, so I'd bring Dad to all, the, all his favorite, favorite haunts um, that he used to go to. But his name was still prominent in our community, Sammy Santos. And, oh, by the way, that's his son. That's Sammy's boy. So I could go around school and tell all my friends, 
my dad could beat your dad. <laughs> that was my favorite thing. And then a couple of people just caught up with me and said, well, what about you, boy? And then, and, and then, and then we'd mix it up. Now, don't forget, now, we're living, we're living in these hotel rooms. There was about 20-plus uh, hotels, apartments in that international district at that time. And most of the Filipinos that came during that era, during the 20s and 30s, were prohibited because of, of immigration laws from bringing their wives, their fiancés, their girlfriends, their families. So you had buildings with all these guys in them, Right. All these, I'm, right. looking, I'm looking at my community, the Filipino community. And so on a Saturday, my dad was, was blind. He'd have like an open house in our little SRO Nine by room. 13 room, yeah. And then we'd have the party out into the, the hallway. And then Danny, the bootlegger, would bring the booze. Julian, of course, he worked, he was uh, at the commissary at Pier 91. He would bring the food couple of guys that would show up, a couple of ex-boxers, and it'd be a party. And then two women would always show up. One was Marge, redhead, and one was Dixie, the blonde. Dixie, named after Bing Crosby's wife, Dixie Crosby. Anyway, they were the working pros. They worked the building. They worked the NP Hotel. Wow. They were the, they were the local call girls. But they, they partied with us. Now, you can imagine little Bob, altar boy, going to mass, you know, serving, going to confession and really holy. And then I'd be with my dad with all this real life kind of stuff. And when these young women, they were, they were white, beautiful, they had the perfume they smelled, and they'd pat me on the head. Oh, what a nice little boy. And then things started to change within me, right? You started to realize, hey, these are really cool chicks, you know. <laughs> and, 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 you know, they're like 23 years old right. and I'm like 10 or 11. And so I, I lived this dual life, you know. Uh, you were the altar boy during the week boy and, and you were just in the Mike, middle of it. And I'd go to confession because I'd have all these ideas about what would I do if I was 20 years old and, and with Marge or, or with Dixie and then I'd have to go to confession and because and, you know, that, I, was, that uh, was a sin, right, to think about that kind of stuff. So I, that was growing up. I, yeah. I was raised uh, Catholic as well, 12, okay. year, 12 years of Catholic school. I, I remember, oh boy, I remember and, and, confession. And, the pro- and the problem there, you're afraid to do anything because if you did something, it was a sin, right? Yeah. And I'm thinking, holy cow, if I'd have died, then I'd have went right to hell. So where'd you go to high school? I went to O'Day, that other Catholic school on uh-huh. Capitol Hill. What'd you do after high school? I followed my dad's footsteps, and when dad was a trainer— at a gymnasium on 7th and Pike. Uh, 7th and Pike Street was a gymnasium. My, my brother and I would get together at the gymnasium after to visit my dad, and he'd put us in the ring, right? And my brother, my brother was a year older than me, and he'd beat me up, right? And, and I'd start crying, and the guys would throw money at us. It would throw money in the ring. And I said, oh, that's pretty cool. So Sam and I did that. Every Saturday, we'd go down there, and then I'd put on my crying act, and they'd, 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 <laughs> they'd throw money in the ring, you know. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so O'Day High School had a boxing team. Boxing was a sport, a high school sport, in some of the schools around the state and some of the universities. And then in 1952, I graduated from O'Day and had a scholarship to Gonzaga. Gonzaga had a, had a boxing team. And a young fellow died of boxing injuries from the University of Wisconsin or something. So the NCAA eliminated boxing as a sport. They just, you know, they, it was done. It was done. So I joined the Marine Corps. That's that's a different story. That was I had a ball. You like the Marine Corps? I I loved the military life. The Korean War was on at that time. I wanted to become a hero. On my way on a ship to Korea. The armistice was signed. You didn't have to go into combat. I didn't have to go into combat, but I joined a boxing team because you didn't have to do KP or guard duty. So I joined a boxing team, and we traveled around Korea and Japan and stuff. So that was sort of fun. That was that was fun duty. So I want to turn the dial back on the on the clock here. So if you were living in the ID in the forties, then you were there when the Japanese were interned. Right. That was, Marino School was, 
I told you that the the center of the civil rights movement was St. Peter Claver Center, and Mary Knoll School was the school church, missionary school church on 17th and, and Jefferson, where we went to school with the Japanese kids, 1940, 1941. And when Pearl Harbor happened, of course, one day, well, there was this little Japanese girl that I I fell in love with when I was in, in first grade. With all the money I made on from the ring, I'd worked my way up to sit across from her. We had these wooden, square wooden, wooden desks, and students were sitting across from each other. And I finally got to sit across from Pauline Matsudaira. Oh, my God. And one day, of course, in a, it was a February of 1942 or March, all the kids were gone. The Japanese kids were routed up put on buses, and sent to concentration camps. So the school, with 98% Japanese-Americans, other 2% were Filipino kids, they closed the school up. So that became, as I said, uh, the Marino Missionary Order sold the property to the archdiocese. And the archdiocese opened up, they opened up the facility as a social service center. Where... Jumbling the timeline a little. Yeah, but we're but, jumping. But that's my. I'm the interviewer. It's my. I'm supposed to get the timeline right. Okay. You'll just have to forgive me. I'm a horrible interviewer. I'm working on this, Bob. Let's try to tie the threads back together again. You came back from, as I understand it, you came back from serving in the Marine Corps. You mm-hmm. returned to the International District, and you got a job here at the Claver Center, right? At at St. Peter Claver Center, yes. What was your job there? I joined the um, Knights of Columbus. I was the head of the athletic program at the Knights of Columbus, and we had a boxing program, and we taught young young kids uh, of calisthenics. It was during President Kennedy's um, yeah the fitness challenge fitness challenge. Right, we right. were caught up with that. I and, I remember taking the president's physical fitness test yeah. as a young man. Okay, I don't think I passed, but I did well, my you would have been okay. <laughs> it, 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 it was really funny. I'm slow and I can't jump. <laughs> Just for the record, Bob. We, we had we had a couple kids that came through the program. One of them was a little little short little guy, wasn't very coordinated. He became a professional golfer. I forgot his name now. Fred Couples? Freddie Couples. Little Freddie. Wow. Okay. So, so I had this van, and every Saturday I'd go along the route in southeast Seattle and pick up all the kids to bring them to the, to the program at the Knights of Columbus. And we'd pick up Freddie because Freddie was the neighborhood. They were in the neighborhood where my nephews and nieces lived. So we'd pick up Freddie and... Um, this would go back and forth, back and then one day Freddie said, "Oh, you guys, I I can't go because I I have to caddy over at Jefferson Golf Course." And everybody made fun of him. So we drive by the Jefferson Golf Course and we see Freddie sitting out at the um where the caddies yeah. sat, and we'd all wave out the van window, "Hey, Freddie, why are they? How you doing? You know." And so you know the story after that. Freddie he becomes becomes Freddie, unbelievable golfer. Yeah. Then there was another kid that was sort of a wimpy sort of a kid, Jim Pugil. Oh, I know Jim Pugil. Yeah. Anyway, a wimpy sort of a kid. He was a tough guy when I met him. He was a him. wimpy sort of a kid, and I really felt <laughs> sorry for him because he'd get his nose bloodied every once in a while. Okay, so. for the record, let me fill, fill you in. Uh, for you <laughs> listeners outside of Seattle, uh, Jim Pugil went on to join the police force, work his way through the ranks, and was uh, the chief of police uh, yes. while I was mayor. That's right. And was always in awesome condition, as I recall. He was, he's always and he looked re- he really looked the part. Yeah. He really looked the part. He better police chief than he was a boxer. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I thought he was a very good police chief. So yeah, he um, was. He was very he good. He was. Hey, but so how does driving around, picking up kids teaching them fitness, how does this get you into a life of civic activism? Well, what was the intersection? As I said, then I joined the Knights of Columbus. I was working for them, and there was another fellow African-American guy. His name was Walter Hubbard. He was starting to get involved in the local civil rights movement. He was with the national chapter of, of black Catholics, and so he talked me into joining the Catholic Interracial Council. And the Catholic Interracial Council held all its meetings at St. Peter Claver Center. So uh, I became involved with the Catholic Interracial Council. And then L- Walter was executive director of 
the uh, social service program at St. Peter Clever Center called Caritas, Community Action Remedial Instruction Tutorial Service, some big old acronym. Walter moved on to head the Civil Rights Division at King County Government, and I took over his post as director of Caritas. Along with that, we had the largest office at St. Peter Claver Center, so I was the assistant manager of the building. Got it. Now, the manager of the building was a guy named D. Harvey McIntyre, a Catholic priest at Immaculate, but he was busy doing his pastoral duties, and so he said, Bob, you, you rent out the space. So you were still living your double life, weren't I'm you, I'm still Bob? living this double life, and uh, the first people that come to us— uh, they wanted to start a breakfast program because we had a kitchen and an auditorium were Elmer and Aaron Dixon. Who are Elmer and Aaron Dixon? They were, I'm glad you asked that question there, Mike. They were the charter members of the local chapter of the Black Panther Party. The archbishop would ask Father McIntyre, we don't see any revenue coming out from St. Peter Claver Center. So they would send me to with an invoice to Aaron and Elmer Dixon, and I'd go up to them, and Mike, they were seven feet tall, you know, uh, and I'd look up to them, and they'd say, what's, what's, can we help you there, Uncle Bob? I said, well, uh, God, you guys are doing a good job with the kids and all that, and I'd back away, and I'd tell Father McIntyre, I said, you know, these guys are really doing the Lord's work, you know, we shouldn't be charging them, so... So so let me. So the so, word so I, so I need to correct a little bit. You weren't actually renting it out to them. You were giving it to them for free. You were giving it to them for free. You were giving it to them for free. Now what? What was your weight class? Uh, oh, I was Bob? a lightweight. You were a lightweight. I've always been a lightweight. <laughs> so so Mike. Okay. So the word gets around the community yeah. for some reason that if you want meeting space, and we're talking about civil rights civil rights organizations, um, United Farm Workers, where. The boycott, uh, boycotting grapes, Safeway, uh, right. Safeway stores, and uh, Tyree Scott, the great civil rights leader of our time, uh, was closing down construction jobs where minorities were not being hired, and so so the word was, you guys could have meeting space there because Uncle Bob doesn't charge you. By fall, default, or whatever, we you had became, you had all the local activists organizing in all town. The local activists meeting in our building, and that's where I met Larry Gossett, Bernie Whitebear, uh, Roberto Maestas. They all had their meetings at St. Peter Claver Center. The Indians were looking south to San Francisco and saw where the activists, Indian activists, at occupied Alcatraz, the island of Alcatraz. And they held it for almost a year or so. But there was nothing positive came out of that. So a guy named uh, Joe Delacruz from uh, Quinault Tribe, Bernie got together and said, listen, we're gonna, we should occupy Fort Lawton and, and force, force the, this government. What, what happened, the, the Army Fort was surplus to the original owners, the city. The Indian said, bull schmuck. We're the original owners, and we should have this property. And so they occupied, 1970 or so. Indians climbed the fence into Fort Lawton, set up teepees, and they occupied a, a, a sort of a, an acre of land. And that was big news, and uh, Bernie was on the map because Bernie was able to gather the Indian leaders from the tribes throughout western Washington to support this takeover of this of this property. And Joe Delacruz, uh, he was the leader of the Quinault Indian tribe, uh, and Bernie got together and said, listen, we got to do something different here. No booze, no drugs. You know, we occupy, no booze, no drugs. And so that's why their occupation of Fort Lawton was so um, successful, is that the city leaders and the two U.S. senators and the county executive were looking at uh, Fort Lawton and the Indian occupation and said, you know, there might some, it could be something positive coming out of this. They cut a deal, didn't and they? Bernie just, he just worked this magic. Got the senators to support him, uh, the mayors at that time, and they cut a deal for 20 acres deeded to the new formed United Indians of All Tribes Foundation. 
and uh, they cut a 99-year lease, and they built a Daybreak Star Center there. Right. So, so visitors— that was, a, that was one of the first occupations in Seattle. So visitors to Seattle and Seattleites, when you go to that beautiful Daybreak Star Center and with the beautiful view over Puget Sound— yeah. Yeah, the Native Americans uh, climbed the cliff. I, I spoke with Larry Gossett. He, talk, he talked about that he and some of the Black Panthers, they went down and they jumped the fence too and joined them down there. Yes. So this is interesting. What We, we had Black and Native American activists right. occupying the same place. Tell me, tell me, about, but, what, yeah, tell but, me about this. But, but, but check this out, though. So the Indians were in their jeans and tennis shoes and cowboy hats and uh, the Black Panthers and uh, BSU, Black Student Union uh, supporters, they came over the fence. They were wearing black leather jackets, you know, and nice designer boots and all that kind of stuff. So there was, there was a little contrast there. and it was, it was funny to watch. You could see where the communities of color would support each other. The Native American activists that were trying to recapture their fishing rights on tribal fishing grounds, fish in the rivers, in, 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 in the open Puget Sound, um, were being prohibited by state laws. Yeah, I, we, we read all about this yeah. in, in law school. I mean, it's, That's right. this, this is now studied by everybody about everybody. how the Native and, Americans... It, Enforce their treaty rights. That's right. And they they were, said we don't have to listen to the state because we have a treaty with the federal government, and we're we're entitled to half the fish. So, so Bob Satyakum was one of the first leaders. Billy Frank Jr., mm-hmm. uh, Al Bridges, and Bernie White Bear, they became prominent in the Indian fishing rights movement. And of course, it didn't hurt by having Marlon Brando right come right. to town, Jane Fonda. When I saw Jane Fonda, you know, with those, those Indians, I said I could get involved in the Indian <laughs> fishing rights, and so, so I, I, I started, I started reading up on it and started and and, and met Bernie and those kind of folks. But and, you'd met them already, in fact. No, we hadn't yet. Okay. Bernie's involvement with the Indian fishing rights was before the occupation of Fort Lawton. So but, you met him then when they were planning the occupation of Fort Lawton. Bernie had brought his people to a meeting at St. Peter Claver Center, and they were there were people on site at Fort Lawton, and then they uh, they had a meeting at St. Peter Claver Center to recruit more natives from the area, and they were in our little auditorium, and you know the Native Americans they start every meeting with the traditional and some sense spiritual stuff, the burning of the sage and you know the drums. Right after the meeting, one of the nuns that still lived in the, in, in the convent next to the St. Peter Clever Center, Uncle Bob, Uncle Bob, those Indian kids are starting to smoke the sage. And I said, it's okay, sister, as long as I don't inhale. <laughs> anyway. So, but this is, this to me was, and I'm hearing so many news stories here, but as I lear- began to learn of this, it really struck me the degree to which there was a multicultural coalition yeah. forming around this. Yeah. So tell me about how the different groups worked with each other then in that time period. How, how, how did it work? Now, we're talking about the late 60s, early 70s. And I, I had mentioned uh, uh, Terry Scott. He was, a, he was a, a construction worker. He was an electrician by trade. And Terry uh, was a wonderful organizer. And he started meeting at St. Peter Claver Center the same time the Black Panthers would come in their breakfast program, like 6 o'clock in the morning. And Tyree would drive around the central area, and if he saw a construction site of a, of a new home being built, and he, saw, and, 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 and he saw the crew would be all white, he'd come back to St. Peter Claver Center with his four or five uh, black militants and said, okay, brothers, we have to shut that project down. We're going to go there tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock in the morning, before the workers get there, and we'll surround the place, and then we'll not allow any any workers to come in on that site until the superintendent or the foreman promises to, to hire some of our people. So that's what Tyree started to do. He, he, he attacked the construction industry, both the contractors and the unions, because the unions were, also, were not 
bringing in minorities as members. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, there was a dual uh, attack on both boats. The projects from single single uh, uh, homes being built to larger apartments and to larger buildings that were federally funded by the U.S. Right. government. Right. Uh, and don't forget, the 1964 Civil Rights Act had been passed, and in there were inclusions of right. affirmative action programs. And so the unions and the courts were they were not complying with with the law. So Tyree said, "Well, we'll take over. We'll we'll take over these jobs." One of the largest demonstrations was the construction of the of the old Central Seattle Community College campus building. They met at St. Peter Claver Center and the first group to to demonstrate on a Monday there were about 30 demonstrators met at St. Peter set met, met at St. Peter Claver Center marched down Jefferson up to Broadway over to the campus and of course there's a big old battle with with the construction workers and the and the police and the demonstrators second day Double, tripled the people that were there the first day. About 80 or 90 people came the second day because it was going to be a whole week of demonstrations. This is going to be a tough one. And and I tagged along with this group because I had been, I'd been a, appointed to the Seattle Human Rights Commission. So I went as a commissioner just to see if everything is okay. So I'm at the end of the demonstration as 60, 80 people walking down Broadway. And then Tyree is yelling back to us, nonviolent brothers and sisters, this is a nonviolent protest. We're here to get jobs. And as we're going by the construction site, the white construction workers start throwing down material, building material, pieces of wood, nails, larger pieces of wood. And and the demonstrators were looking at each other and Tyree saying, nonviolent, and, and demonstrators say, nonviolent bullshit, boom, up the ladders. All the demonstrators up the ladders. It's a big old battle going on, right? With the yeah. Construction workers and and, and and there's one scene on the news, the the, the uh, King TV news that night of Larry Gossett going up the ladder with a two by four in his hand. And we want to get that footage. You know, we need to get that we footage. Get, yeah, yeah. Get that footage. So anyway, this big ruckus happens, and then uh, someone yells, "Tax squad coming down." Broadway, you know, formation our Seattle Police Department task squad, crunch, 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 crunch with their visors and all that. So everybody down the ladders and out out the gate. But I stuck around because there was an old guy that when the demonstrators were, were coming up the ladders at the beginning of the demonstration, he was there with his arms on his hips saying, you'll come up to you'll come up this floor over my dead body. Well, they sort of did. They marched all over him. And he was he was all bleeding and all that stuff, and so I stuck with him till the aid car came, and the aid car comes. So I go down the ladder and I'm alone. So I go towards the north gate, and under a tree on the right side, handcuffed are Tyree Scott, Michael Ross, Milt Jefferson, and Todd Hawkins. As I'm going out the defense, out the fence, Michael Ross, he says, "Hey, officer, come here." The officer says, yeah, what do you want? He says, see that guy? He's with us. They're pointing at me, right? And so the cop comes over. He's like, you with them? I said, I guess so. And so I got arrested. That was my first <laughs> first time being busted. I'm saying, I'm with the Human Rights Commission. I don't give a shit, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And so and so I get busted. And we, they bring us down to jail. There's two of us to a cell. And I'm with Todd Hawkins. So Todd and I go into the cell, and he goes right to the cot. He lays down. He said, it's been a very trying day for me. <laughs> and so he's starting to, to buzz off. And this is the first time I'm arrested, and I'm thinking I've been watching these shows, nightly news on TV about police brutality in the South with the dogs and the police beating up. And I'm saying, oh, my God, what did I get into now, you know? So I start humming, we shall overcome. Mm-hmm. And Todd says, well, you shut the F up. <laughs> what was a good Catholic boy like you doing I was, there, man? I was all full of, you know, uh, peace and brotherhood. So the arresting officer comes in and says, you guys, um, 
you guys can leave if you sign the citation, and then we'll get you a court date. And so I jump up and I start signing. Todd says, Bob, we're not signing nothing. We're here to give them a message. We're going to go on a hunger strike. And I said, Todd, my wife and kids are home. They don't know I'm in jail, and it's my turn to cook. And so I, I, I signed a citation. <laughs> Next morning, go to St. Peter Clare's, and I get these big cheers. Todd's still in jail, right? right. I come to St. Peter Clare's, hey, right on, Bob. I said, yeah, we were going to stay there a week. We were going to go on a hunger strike. Anyway, that's, that's my story of being arrested the first time. So Tyree brought together Larry Gossett, Roberto Maestas, Bob Santos, and Bernie Whitebear at all these demonstrations. And separately, we didn't have enough people in the black community, Latino community, Asian community. But when we got together to support each other, there were 200 people. So what and effect— And the anti-war movement was also right, prominent. Right. So what affected this uh, Native American and black and Latino activism have upon the Asian American community in, in the ID at the time? So so in the late 60s, early 70s, the kingdom was being planned for the, for the neighborhood. Now, we already had a freeway on the east side of the neighborhood, I-5. I-90 was being planned on the south side of the district. And then the kingdom on the west side, and we said, oh, Jesus, we're surrounded by concrete. And so we started having demonstrations against the kingdom. And, and, to, show, and to show force, we called on Tyree Scott. Larry Gossett, Bernie Whitebear, and Myas to bring their troops to support the Asians. So they brought all their people down. And so our rallies and demonstrations had all this, this, real, this rainbow of the community of color activism. And we would go from the ID to, De- to Daybreak Star with their demonstration. Did we go up to St. Peter Claver Center and camp? where uh, Larry Gossett was executive director, supported them. Then we'd go over to El Centro to support. So we're moving around our communities, going from one ethnic group to another, lending our support. So this, by the way, if you like these stories, and I love them, Bob. I mean, I'm just blown away. You need to know that Bob has a book, The Gang of Four, Four Leaders, Four Communities, One Friendship. Larry Gossett, I've had the chances to talk with him. The stories I hear are amazing. I had the privilege of, of getting to know Roberto a little bit before he passed away a few years ago. Yeah, and he supported you very early on when you ran. He me. supported me very early on, and he really inspired me. It's hard for me to describe, and I wish he was here with us. You know, God, I wish he was here with us. He was amazing. And He's a wild he, man. And his sense of humor, too, man. His, it was He was there. He was there. And... And I learned so much, and I, of course, didn't get to meet Bernie White Bear before, because it was before my time of being active and, and getting out of my own community. And that's one of the things I try to talk to people about. you got to get out of your own community and learn yeah. what's happening in other communities. That's part of the inspiration of the show. You've got to understand that people have fights and the challenges. that They're all linked together. Yeah. They're all linked together. you got to find a way to understand the connections. And it took me years and years to learn that, and and I, that's in part why I was so so inspired by this. So he has a book coming to bookstores in April 2015, The Gang of Four. And the, the launch is actually going to be um, May 12th at uh, Mohai, the Museum of History and Industry, uh, 6.30, if anybody wants to, to join us there. But we started, Gary Iwamoto is a co-author with me on, on this book, and we started uh, thinking about writing a book soon after Bernie White Bear passed away, we said, you know, we have this very unique coalition of friendship going on uh, of a Latino, a Native American, an Asian, and a black. And it doesn't happen in, in too many other communities around the country. And so we were able to ins- inspire our own uh, community base to work with other minorities too because together we can get more done. We branched out, not only from our own communities, but Roberto had a very close relationship with uh, the uh, Sandinista uh, uh, sure. and the, the, government it, in Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. In the early 70s, there was a massive earthquake that, that just, just destroyed Managua, Nicaragua. And the folks from El Centro would send down care packages. 
And then later on, they would send down ambulances, um, raise money and send these things down. So Roberto, now did, don't forget, this is during the 80s, 70s, and 80s. This is the Reagan when era. Reagan, right. Reagan right. wanted to invade Nicaragua. Right. I was a... Uh, I- uh, working for a congressman in D.C. at that time. And it turns out that not only did he want to do it, he was doing so against every law on the books right. to do it. So so Roberto would bring these delegations. All of us, Larry, Bernie, we all uh, went on delegations to uh, Nicaragua to learn for ourselves what how the government was working right. with the people. And... Uh, he, Roberto sent about 40 delegations down there, and many of us think that because of all these delegations and people learning more about what was going on, Roberto might have helped save the U.S. from invading wow. Nicaragua. I wow. mean, we give, we, give, we give Roberto a lot of credit, but we did a lot of that, uh, not only local civil rights stuff, but also we were all very involved in international movements too, all four of us. So the podcast format just does not allow me to catch all of the richness of this. It's just, I mean, you went on, as we know, to become head of a community organization called Interim. Mm-hmm. You went on to work for the government, uh, heading up uh, the local region of housing and urban development. Right. You went back to interim, and you're still in the ID. And he goes by, everyone should know, Uncle Bob. When I ran the first time, I saw everybody told me, you got to speak to Uncle Bob. And who's Uncle Bob? And, yeah. and uh, I learned who Uncle Bob was. It's just such an amazing story. I am so, so blessed to, to have you with us today and do this interview with you. And the question I have with all of that perspective that you have What's the same today and what's different? As we look at the Occupy movement, Black Lives Matter, uh, the things that are going on, what's the same and what's different? Well, you know, I was thinking of that driving down here today, and I, um, we, were in, we were in the movement of change. We were bringing people, not only in our communities, but we were educating the larger community about this, the civil rights movement and how it was so much better to include everyone in the in 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 everyday life right government uh industry and all that kind of stuff hire people of color i mean so we were we were very f- successful in generating resources for our nonprofit agencies to serve the communities right you look back and a lot of these young people were coming out of schools. A lot of activists were starting there, and they wanted to they wanted to jump on the bandwagon. So you had all this you had all these Latinos and blacks and Asians and Native Americans supporting all the movements that were occurring at that time. And then people com- became complacent. Things were done for them. We built housing. We uh, changed the educational system. Um, we got involved in the political system. We got a guy named Barack Obama elected. I mean, it was that force. It was, it was the national force, but locally we were very proud of what we did. And then we let him hung out. We hung him out to dry on his own. And the Tea Party took over our action. They took over the activism. The Tea Party, for heaven's sake. So they had learned, I think they had learned a lot from us and how to organize their communities and how they could pressure a change to the political system. And that's what happened. And we stood by and we let it happen. And is I that, hate to is, end the show on a downer, but that's what happened. We have to get back up. Is the pendulum swinging, swinging back, though, well, you feel, with the last few years? In our community, we, we see such an upsurge in activism or young people that want to be active. We have to have something for them. We really have to have something for them. Um, there's so much talent out there. The, 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 number one, the number one thing that got us where we were, the Gang of Four, was our able to build networks ever-growing networks of people out there. And so people from all over the country have been touched in some part 
by what we have done as a local community. And they've gone on, right? Politicians and other uh, community organizers have moved from Seattle to other other communities around the, around the country. And so our network keeps growing. And if we can ever get that network moving in a very positive way or direction again, we can retake our country. That's, a, that's what I call it, you know? You remember the old, you were involved in this in um, back in the Vietnam War where the, the, the conservative side, would, they would say, love it or leave it, right? Well, that's what I tell the Tea Party right now. Love it or leave it. <laughs> I do remember it. If you want to find Uncle Bob and you want to hear the stories and you want to talk about what it takes to organize them, I know where to find you. Tuesday nights. At least Tuesday nights. Tuesday nights, you can find Bob Santos at the- Bush Garden. At the Bush Gardens. That, that was last night. Well, that was yeah. last night. So I'm surprised you still got life and energy well, this I'm morning go after there tonight last too, night. Because it's my birthday, so I'll just- Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And I've been to the Bush Gardens on a Tuesday night, and I've seen Bob Santos, and he owns the karaoke there. <laughs> and I was going to try to get him to sing today, but I don't think I quite got there. You're going to have to go down there yourself and see him. have to go down him. there, yes. But I asked my guests to pick a song. And what song did you pick and why, Bob? Um, the best thing that ever happened to me. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a sort of a, it's a love, it's a love song with the love, lovely lyrics. And it just carries me through the day humming this tune as I'm working through the day. Who are you singing to, Bob? Right, usually it's to myself because my wife is in the state legislature in Olympia right now, right? <laughs> she deserves a show on her own, doesn't she? Does. She? she does. Tell me about tell me about your wife a little bit. Fantastic woman. She's um, she does her homework. You know, there's so many bills to go to, uh, cities, counties, state government. She reads every bill. So when she makes a decision, it's very, very. She's very informed about how that legislation will impact her constituents. Not tomorrow, not next week, not month, but two, three, four years down the down the road. So that's the importance to having someone like her in the state legislature. I'll tell you this: you won't. and it pays really big money too. Oh, now, now, you know that's not true. I want to tell you something: you want Sharon Tomiko Santos on your side. Speaking as a mayor, I knew that was true. Bob, thank you so much for being here with us today. You're welcome, that was awesome. Mike. Let's have some birthday cake. Absolutely.